You're listening to Third Opinion MD. I'm your host, Barbara Delatore, and I am delighted to bring you part two of the interview with Dr. Shelley Smith Acuna. She is the Dean at the Graduate School of Professional Psychology at the University of Denver. And what we're doing is we're focusing on a conversation based on what she writes about for systems theory, and that is there are seven principles where you can understand how systems function and how they are dysfunctional. And in this case, we're really focusing on healthcare. Now, for those of you who missed the previous episode, which is part one of the interview with Dr. Smith Acuna, you should go listen to it. But let me fill you in. I'm going to take you back to part one where I ask her the question in the beginning. I imagine healthcare undergoing this intensive psychotherapeutic session that we've had these players that we can call them a healthcare family unit. They're so unhappy that we assume that it's patients that are unhappy, but it's really doctors, nurses, administrators. It seems like everybody's unhappy with the way the system is working right now. Would you consider as a part of our conversation today applying your seven systems theory principles to these groups as if they're in a family therapy session? Uh, Sure, that sounds great. What we've gone over so far are what we can even just abbreviate as the four C's, context, causality, communication, and change. Those are four of the seven principles related to systems frameworks. And they're really important to know so that we don't fall into the trap of blaming one thing for the problem, or falling into communication traps, or taking things out of context, or even being confused about whether change is good or bad. We go over the first four principles in part one. So let's now turn our attention back to the interview part two. Now structure, that's number five. And the first example that comes to mind is healthcare organizations. There's really no need to name any names here because there, there are a lot of similarities, even though they're, they're different. They, they operate quite similarly. And most people are members of some hospital health organization since the era of doctors and private practice is largely over. It existed probably in the 80s, but it was starting to wane with HMOs and managed care. Let me start with a couple of examples. As a physician who worked in corporate medical environments, I noticed many layers of management, many so-called changes to policies, protocols, schedules. They would change formularies for medications. So if you could get this med, then suddenly you couldn't get this med. And there's also been this, along with decreasing physician autonomy. So most physicians are no longer decision makers anymore, but they've been trained to be that way in the structure, in their medical training. So they're trained to be that way. They're trying to make decisions, but the structure is not allowing for that. Another example would be maybe worsening tension between these classes of healthcare workers. Doctors, nurses, physician assistants, these are probably the top three groups at odds with one another. It's not really talked about, but occasionally it is. It's taboo for the physicians to talk about it, but it's okay for other groups to talk about it. And I think it has to do with hierarchy. And I I think that's where you mentioned that in structure. How would you approach these issues from a systems perspective? Yeah, I, I love this question. And I think understanding human nature, how hard it is to share power and how often we set up systems that are really competitive as opposed to truly collaborative. And if we're really thinking again of a broader goal, which is functional healthcare that really serves patients and also creates a system that is good for people 
to work in, then we could try to envision these rules, roles, boundaries in a way that's empowering to everybody in the system. That's not easy to do. But I think the the idea of understanding what people are empowered to do as opposed to creating those kind of turf wars. And when you say, you know, the different levels of training, how could we really envision a system that acknowledges that higher level of expertise and when it's essential and what the essential duties are and how responsibility could be shared throughout the system. So if you're sharing power and sharing responsibility, it it weaves in some of those other systems constructs. You've got to have good communication to do that. But with good communication, we don't all have to have the same roles and different roles don't have to be disempowering to, to folks in other roles. We can talk about multiple empowerment. That is really interesting about the good communication piece because there is a huge breakdown in communication, especially in the, in the large organizations. And there are two things I think about that may disrupt the hierarchy to the existing groups. One is the entrance of women into the physician role. That was a game changer. But the names and the responsibilities didn't change as much. You have now 50% plus women are physicians now today in, in medical school. But you have the origin of the nurse and the doctor had clear gender roles. Mm-hmm. And now you have women in the role of a supervisor over what was traditionally a woman's role to be a nurse. That's in the past, but still predominantly women. There is some tension there. And it's something that women physicians really cannot talk about. I'm saying it. (laughs) I'm getting this out there. But I'm only saying this because it's not something that we want. We want to work together. We want to collaborate together. Let's start with that. Yeah, I, I love that example because, again, if you think of hierarchy, meaning that it inherently disempowers people at each lower level of the hierarchy, as opposed to there's some kind of a function in the hierarchy and that a healthy hierarchy is really designed to empower everyone at each level of the hierarchy. That's a different way of looking at system structure. And it's easy to see that in families that when kids are misbehaving, often they feel very disempowered and often parents feel disempowered. So the idea of working with a family and helping everyone feel their power in a way that is not hostile, aggressive at someone else's expense, but really is good for the whole is almost always a really worthwhile exercise. I wonder about what it would look like to try that level of analysis and that level of clarity about how power exists and how power could be shared throughout the system. What your question reminds me of, if we get back to these roles in your medical care family, one exercise in structural therapy is to have everyone in the system take on the role of somebody else in the system and articulate what they believe. So your doctor nurse example, how would they articulate taking that different role what are their challenges? What are their pain points? What are their victories? All of a sudden, you can often expose a lot of, as you say, unspoken beliefs, rules, roles that can be transformed. I thought of the other example that kind of coincides with 
that tension between those two groups, and that is the formation of unions with nurses and no unions with doctors. It sounds like it's a compensatory response to that differential of power. And it's not something that people have to face directly, except there are some institutions that do have that in place. You have either nurses or sometimes physician assistants, they are unionized and they have their form of communication through the union, which is very different from how doctors who are not unionized are communicating. So it adds another layer of complexity. I think it's a great idea that you mentioned the role reversal. We'll have to do that in therapy for these guys. (laughs) (laughs) So with structure, we then move into the sixth principle, and that's history and development. Most health professionals, in my opinion, don't spend as much time as they should on understanding the history of their profession, their legacy, the mistakes made. They look at all the victories, but there are a lot of lessons learned with every profession. Mm or how they're perceived by patients unless they've studied human behavior more closely. I mean, I had almost three years of psychiatry training, so I I look at these things a lot more, but I I imagine that's not something that happens because when I observe colleagues who haven't had a lot of behavioral or mental health training, they look at patients and don't really see that the background does inform their behavior and how their history of their development as well as the history of the development of that position, not just the profession, but personally. Mm-hmm. I guess I think also of how patients with a history of trauma are also very much at risk for being re-traumatized in the healthcare setting without this attention to history and development. I'll introduce the term countertransference is common, but it's implicit. I'm going to have you explain countertransference to the audience. How can the key concepts of history and development help patients in healthcare settings? I think First of all, that that transference idea came, of of course, from Freud and early psychiatry practice, basically saying that unconsciously we can't help but not only kind of experience others as reenacting what we saw in our own family of origin, but part of what happens when we have that transference and kind of experience people treating us the way that we thought our parents treated us is that suddenly our behavior starts to almost elicit that kind of reaction. And so when you think about transference and countertransference, you, of course, get that bidirectional causality again, that the physician also is going to be, or the, the provider in any way, is going to be reacting to the stimuli of the way that the patient is treating them. And so you've got transference and countertransference in a very elaborate dance. At, at all times. And so the countertransference, just to clarify for the audience, is the reaction from the physician or the therapist, the server in the family, in this family unit here. And the transference comes from the patient traditionally. But they're really not different, right? Because the countertransference is really just transference. One of the most difficult patient groups to deal with for healthcare providers are borderline personality disorder patients, but that's a whole other topic. I have concerns about sort of the the way people are diagnosed, the bias towards women in some cases, and diagnosing that, and the manner in which we manage it. And I I think it was Linehan who came up with the wise mind and uh, dialectical behavioral therapy, which is a way of managing the crisis modes that borderline patients can, or people with borderline features. It, there's a whole spectrum. It was just the simplest Venn diagram, and it just was the coolest thing to see 
that a lot of times doctors who are trained to be very rational and not emotional because it interferes with objectivity in their linear training and cause and effect training, reductionist thinking. And then you have the patient who is having an emotional crisis and they're on the far end of the spectrum. And then the wise mind is that blending of both. And then going into what you have talked about in your book, Bowen's differentiation, I believe, where you're trying to, you're able to kind of separate the thought and the feelings, but, but utilize them in the best way possible, right? I would love it if every single person working in healthcare took psychology classes. Well, and the beauty of that would be that life would be better, not just for patients, of course, but for providers as well. That's where you get at that intent versus impact and a lot of not really understanding the problems. It's, it's not that a physician wants to be really impatient or ultimately punitive with someone who's eliciting that kind of impatient reaction. And so to have some perspective on what, what's my countertransference, what's being elicited in me, what am I feeling as well as what am I thinking? And how can I use those two reactions together to go down deeper and find my wise mind and think, what's the best way to react in this situation? What would be most helpful? Yeah. And it goes also back to that idea of and and both again, because it's okay to be a physician with an analytical mind and to have the emotional compassion to be where the patient is at. Not yelling like they are, but you know, in some cases, but but just that presence, there's a way of being, and I can't describe it. I try to cultivate in myself when I see patients is the idea of really just holding that space for them. That's what feels like the wise mind. Mm-hmm. Staying calm and maybe really listening, but that it's okay to do both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And to, to be calm and connected and curious all at right. the same time in terms of that kind of engagement. It, it's funny though, if we talk about history and development, and then we think the history of the medical profession and, and basically the way that that's evolved this moment in history, like when you're saying to make space, to listen in that way, to have that kind of engagement, that's really not the way the system has evolved. And so when we think about what kind of change could take place, the other thing that development I I love thinking about is generational change. And can we envision what's the next generation of healthcare? Not necessarily how is it broken and how can we fix it? Because while that might need to be acknowledged, that can put people on the defensive, but to envision what could be a new generation And sometimes that literally means listening to the next generation age-wise and saying, what are you seeing that we're not seeing here? That, of course, is the beauty that I see of working with families is that there's always wisdom in that next generation of saying, why are you doing things this way? And they could be different. I think that Monica McGoldrick in her book on genograms did a genogram of family medicine in one of her books. I think they're one of the coolest tools. I love using them with my clients. How would you describe genograms to the audience? Yeah, it's just a pictorial representation where you draw out, you know, each generation, parent, child, the the lines. We probably have all seen them and mentioning each individual, you know, having their, their own representation. But what's powerful about a genogram is 
visually seeing all of this on paper in one place. If we talk about systems and parts and holes, and it's hard to wrap your head around that whole of a system. And when you see a genogram, you get you get that relationship just there in black and white uh, of the parts and holes together. It's really powerful. Well, I, I have a background as an artist, so I actually really love drawing all the little symbols and everything because it, it is so cool to see your whole family on one page. It just makes it easier to just kind of look at, like you said, stay, take a step back and look at everything because you don't have that perspective when you're too close to one thing or one generation. But I agree. I think it's going to take the next generation to engender a, a new type of healthcare. Our last principle, number seven, social and cultural narratives. Each of us has had something in our lives that has informed who we are now. This topic is really interesting. I was wondering if you could go into a little further the importance of language shaping experience, dominant narratives, those two concepts. Yeah, I think just recognizing what we all know that human beings are meaning making creatures and like it or not, we're always constantly telling stories about our experience. And so those are often either not conscious or they're just part of the dominant narrative and that we take them for granted. And so understanding the, the ways that narratives shape our experience and that we need them, they can be helpful, but also the ways that they hold us back with the stories that we tell. One thing that I'm pretty open about is that I'm adopted. And so you can tell an adoption story, you can have a narrative about that. And the conscious narrative that I grew up with was that I was so deeply wanted by my parents that I was a chosen baby. So instead of being their biological child, I was the chosen child. And so it was really special to be adopted. And there were parts of that story that actually were quite helpful for my self-esteem. And I, I knew very much that I was wanted by my parents. But the other part of that narrative is somebody gave me away. There was somebody that didn't want me and kind of exploring the impact of both the dominant or stated narrative and then the other cultural narratives. And I had lots of stories about friends' parents that would say negative things about being adopted or other things that both being able to explore both of those stories and then ultimately to make it my own story, to do the exploration of how that turns into my story, which of course is what lots of people do in psychotherapy, because that's where ultimately you rework your story. So you're rewriting what you want to be the dominant narrative. Yeah. And, and understanding again, the, that authorship, that we are all the authors of our own stories. And so to take ownership of authoring our stories. There are actually quite a few narratives in healthcare that I'm deeply disturbed by, actually, that, that are in existence right now, that we have, it's the way we practice medicine with patients. There's a culture of passive-aggressive type care, to be a passive recipient of care, and we, we are the aggressors. And I'm, I'm saying this in a way that just, it's, it becomes an expected scenario, where that's why often when patients would come into urgent care, if they didn't leave with something, that was the, the narrative. I'm going to get something to take care of my illness, like a pill, for example. That becomes a dominant narrative in itself that I can't get better unless 
And then it, we have to change that of what are other possibilities? I grew up with a, a mother who was a physician, fiercely independent, trailblazer. We come from generations from different countries that had either a totalitarian government or there was war. I was born in Argentina, but I ended up here in the United States as a young child. I grew up with these stories. And at the same time, I grew up with a physician who had an integrative medicine background. Even before medical school, the dominant narrative was there is a way to think independently and you have to look at these things. Don't take this at face value. So I've always had that going in. What I was not prepared for is that's not the dominant narrative <laughs> in medical school and it's not the dominant narrative in residency and beyond. The narrative is actually you learn it this way. It's very military style organization. If you don't do as you're told and sort of kind of stay in your place, it goes up against that. Rewriting is quite difficult. What would you think would it take to change that? I, I don't know if that fits into this one or not. No, I, I, think, I think where it fits really well is uh, along this whole line of thought about the importance of language and dominant narratives is looking for exceptions in experiences and telling the stories of exceptions. Because what we do with the dominant narratives is we reinforce them and exceptions, instead of being opportunities for change, are just outliers. And so part of what you're saying is to try to look at medical training and to encourage medical students, perhaps, or residents or whatever, to say, when, when is the time that you were treated differently? When is the time that you had the opportunity to challenge conventional authority and it actually went well? Where could there be a culture of saying, if we know we want to change the system, we're going to have to start looking for exceptions and amplifying those exceptions? Another interesting thing now that I think of it is that there was a definite difference amongst the three areas of, I guess, medical life. And medical school was my best experience. Residency was not. And, and being an attending or life after residency was similar to residency in some ways, in terms of that narrative. In medical school, I went to one that had, I got to tell you, it's very unique. Because when I speak to other colleagues, they didn't have the same experience. But I chose this school partly because it had a, a center for humanities. So it had a medical humanities department. So they're already thinking outside multiple systems. They are on an island. So this is, uh, I'll just give it away. It's University of Texas Medical Branch, Galveston. And I absolutely loved going there. And I had an art opening there. So they let me do that. There was a, a group called the, the Osler Student Scholars. That's based on a physician named William Osler. Are you familiar with him? Oh, gosh. I'm going to bring him back in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> he is like the Albert Schweitzer, right, of the of the early 20th century, you know, in terms of, but in a different legacy. He was one of the founders of Johns Hopkins University. He is from Canada. He went to McGill in Montreal, and he was also a professor at Oxford. So, I mean, very accomplished physician, but was known for his bedside manner. He changed the face of medical education. I mean, he was just part of that, and he was part of change. He was just a very interesting very interesting physician. He was a funny person, was also very well-respected, and he just was innovative. And he gave a lot of speeches about that. And I always turn back to history. There was a lot of that at UTMB. 
they had a society where they opened a scholarship for students, and I was one of the first student scholars. In that, I had that space, and again, probably more systems again, to create things. It created a Spanish-speaking medical cafe so that people would come and listen to music and learn medical Spanish and eat food. And It was the, that idea. Or just giving a talk about designing therapeutic spaces. There, it was just a lot of permission to look broadly at health education and wellness. When I left medical school, no. I think that was the real world. <laughs> so the real world in residency and medical school is usually not that way. So I think that was an outlier. But, oh, I just think it was the most amazing education. And if, if only we could have that kind of broad, more encompassing circular way of thinking, it would be amazing. But going even further back, because pre-med, that's where, that's where it gets locked in. Well, I will say, you know, even hearing you tell that story, like those, those are the stories that I know you're looking for, which is wonderful that we need to keep finding more and more of those stories. And maybe it's not changing the whole system, but maybe not just the individual. Maybe there's a residency program that you'll find through your podcast that really is saying, we're going to do this differently. Someone who's willing to experiment to say the next generation should look different. I love that. The timing, the reckoning that our world is in, in so many different ways right now is a, a powerful opportunity and obviously discouraging in many ways <laughs> to see all the things that are broken, yeah. but also the chance to address that feels really interesting. So I appreciate your thinking along those lines. Shelley, thank you so much for taking time to talk about these topics. Thank you. A real pleasure. For the audience, you can find more information on the website, thirdopinionmd.org, and on the show notes for this episode. And there you can click on the links to the articles and books. I urge you to get the book, Systems Theory, which you can find also on my list of resources. And I am currently taking new clients. If you want to take a deeper dive into understanding your health and strategizing how to navigate through this healthcare system, go to the website find out about the services. And there is also an opportunity to meet with me for a free consultation to find out more about the service. If you want to be the change in this world, you need to become a systems thinker. When you gain a broader perspective on the world around you, you're in a much better position to change it. From this point forward, you're no longer just a patient. You're an informed consumer. You're your best doctor. And you can make decisions in a more balanced way between your thoughts and feelings. Third Opinion MD podcast is produced by me, Barbara Delatore, and is generously funded in part by a grant from the Regional Arts and Culture Council. Music is licensed through Audio Jungle. I'd love to hear from you. Please send me your comments, questions, or suggestions for future topics and guests you'd like to have on the show. You can find the contact form under the podcast tab at the website thirdopinionmd.org. Any comments made by the host or guest on Third Opinion MD reflect opinions about healthcare and self-care. Please consult with your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. Be sure to follow or subscribe to this podcast and submit a rating on your favorite podcast player. Thank you for listening.